You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. This evening, we're looking at chapter 11, and you'll find this on page 423 of the Pew Bible. We're going to be reading all 20 verses of chapter 11 together. This is Job's third so-called friend. His name is Zophar, and his speech begins in Job chapter 11, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You'll remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday, its darkness will be like the morning. And you'll feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last. Well, Job had listened and responded to the speeches of courtly Eliphaz and argumentative Bildad. Both men seemed to have orthodox views of God's unbending justice. You remember how Bildad said, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And those questions demanded the answer, no. They also rightly maintained the doctrine of total human depravity. Eliphaz said, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And again, both questions demand the answer no. So the issue with these two friends was not one of unorthodox views. Their problem was in the wrong and erroneous application of truth. If one suffers, it's an indication of God's disfavor. It's judgment for sin. It's all there is to it. If one prospers... It's an indication of God's favor. It's his blessing. That's all there is to it. 
A person reaps what he sows, and in their view, there is no nuance, no mystery to how God operates in the universe. But God is sovereign, and his ways are often shrouded in deep mystery. We're told that the secret things belong to him and the things revealed belong to us. So we're called, as Elder Miller prayed, to believe in the word even when providence is confusing. In our passage for this evening, Job once again listens to a speech, this time from a third friend, ill-mannered Zophar. He is called a Namathite or a resident of Nama, and we're not sure where that was located. But Zophar is far more harsh than the other two and probably the most hardened of the three. While each of the other two speaks three times, Zophar speaks only twice. And perhaps after Job's reply to Bildad's third speech, he's so disgusted that he just gives up. When he speaks, Zophar does so without feeling, without pity, without due consideration. He is, in other words, a hard-hearted man, strict, rigid, unsympathetic, and at times cruel. And yet, like those who spoke before him, he seems to have orthodox views of God. He affirms, for example, the Lord's incomprehensibility. Notice how he says he cannot find out the deep things of God. He acknowledges the divine omnipresence because he says we cannot find the limit of the Almighty. He recognizes the justice of God who will not consider or tolerate iniquity. But while he is orthodox, he is overly zealous and far too dogmatic. This is the same or a similar problem that we encountered with his other two friends. Zophar asserts his application of truth without reserve, without modesty. He was sadly mistaken in his judgment regarding Job's suffering. And one commentator, I'm happy to say, called his comments reckless exaggeration. All his arguments, you'll notice, are rooted in this life. There's no mention of the life to come. He is in some ways, I think, a forerunner to the first century Sadducees. You remember the Sadducees, those who embraced the Torah and only the Torah and claimed a belief in God, but they were rationalistic. In essence, they were materialists and they denied all spirits and the supernatural. And their understanding of reality was informed largely by their senses, what they could see and touch and hear. Unless something can be proved empirically, they refuse to believe it. And apart from their lip service to the five books of Moses, they were, in effect, rationalists. Their philosophy was that of a fool, and they assumed the primacy of human reason. But finite and fallen human beings are in no position to sit in judgment. In the words of the Apostle Paul, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Why do men presume to arraign God before the tribunal of reason? Have you ever thought about that? Must he answer to us? May creatures interrogate the great creator of all things? Is the standard of truth really whether or not I can understand it? 
God says, if God says something in his book, there should be no question of its veracity. We may not like it. It may ruffle our feathers. It may be displeasing to the flesh. Quite frankly, I went home this morning under a cloud because we talked about sin and death and hell. Didn't like it. But if God says it, it must be so and it will be so because he is sovereign. Besides, the rationalistic and materialistic worldview doesn't make any sense. Empirical studies can only observe a small fraction of the universe. On what basis, then, does Zophar assume rationality and the regularity and uniformity of the whole cosmos? He hasn't seen it all. He might say that God created the world, but now God has left it alone, hands off, And one might classify, therefore, Zophar as an ancient deist. He wound it up, and he let it go. Unless somebody steps out of line, and then he suffers. For all intents and purposes, I think he was a functional materialist, and materialists have no basis for assuming our rationality as human beings, the regularity of nature, and the uniformity of the universe. What's more, sin has distorted every faculty, including our reason. It's distorted. So we can't rightly interpret the universe apart from God's revelation. Hebrews 11.3 is right. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And notice there the primacy of faith. By faith, we understand The world wants to say, I have to understand to have faith. Notice the primacy of faith again. We believe the inspired testimony of the Bible because no human being that was there when God created the world were dependent entirely upon what he tells us. The infinite, eternal, almighty God has taught us about his creation. And with his testimony, we can rightly interpret the universe. That's not irrational. In fact, that's the most rational thing that you or I could ever do. Trust him when he tells us the truth. So, Zophar, the ill-mannered materialist, has no ground upon which to stand. He doesn't understand the universe truly. He cannot interpret it rightly. And his dogmatic evaluation of Job's suffering misses the mark entirely. Clearly, he's perturbed by what he perceives as Job's impertinence. He has no patience with Job's questions, complaints, or murmurings. And he views Job's laments as nothing more than idle chatter. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right, says Zophar? Should your babble silence men and when you mock, shall no one shame you? And he's implying there that someone needs to rebuke Job for his complaints. How improper they are, he says. How shocking and unacceptable before God. And Zophar wishes that the Lord himself would speak and reprimand Job. It's an extreme brand of conservatism that crosses the line. And he is the first of three friends to accuse Job directly of wickedness. Look at verse 6. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. 
In other words, as a penalty for sin, your present afflictions, Job, are too good for you. He lost 10 children. He lost everything he owned. He lost his health and his wife turned against him. And that's not enough. It's hard to believe the presumption of this so-called friend of Job. He has no evidence. He's heard no testimony. He simply assumes something about the punishment. And his faulty logic leads him to the same conclusion that it led his friends Eliphaz and Bildad. Job is suffering. He must be guilty. He's suffering very badly. He must be really guilty. And he goes on to rebuke Job for presuming to pry into God's unsearchable secrets. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? The Lord is omniscient and omnipresent and he's infinite and eternal. And he has ultimate authority, so no court can summon and reverse his decision. And he underscores the stupidity of human beings who live in disobedience. And we agree with him on that, don't we? It seems to be a lofty view of the Lord. The deep things of God go beyond our understanding. So who are we? And he seems to acknowledge how mysterious such things are to us. But why why is Zophar so dense when it comes to the moral universe in which we live? Don't those deep things of God include the ways in which God operates? God is the one who said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you remember the context in which he said that? He said those words in the context of mercy to the wicked. Men like Zophar don't give second chances. He understands justice, but he doesn't understand mercy and grace and compassion or love. His thoughts are not God's thoughts, and his ways are not God's ways. Yes, God is a righteous judge who will by no means clear the guilty, but he reveals himself also as a merciful God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And you say, well, how can that be? How can he be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? He can do it through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put him forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. You see, Zophar understood the law, but he failed to grasp the gospel. He knew and affirmed the justice of God who will punish the wicked, but he was totally ignorant of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. And sadly, many in our day are as ignorant as Zophar. Many ministers, sad to say, my colleagues, they excel at preaching the law. They can denounce our transgressions, but they're clumsy at best in giving us the hope of forgiveness in Christ. And don't misunderstand me. I know personally how hard it is to preach the gospel well. I don't claim to do it well, but we should be able to hear something of mercy and grace 
If only in the reading of Scripture the gospel should be declared. Zophar says that if Job repents, he'll experience peace and restoration. He says in verses 13 to 14, If you prepare your heart, stretch out your hands toward him, and if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. So far, so good. The steps laid out for Job to follow if he hopes to be restored. Do some heart work. Go to God in prayer with your hands stretched out. Then turn from your iniquity. And from that point, stay away from evil. The picture he paints verbally of God's blessings may be appealing. And we agree with the steps of repentance. But it's far too mechanical. Far too mechanical. Look what he says in verse 15. You'll lift up your face without blemish. And do you not see in that a subtle dig at his disfigurement? Doesn't this show just how heartless and inconsiderate Zophar can be? Can you imagine the oozing boils all over his body, including his face, that must have terribly marred and disfigured his countenance? Unrecognizable. And how cruel was it for Zophar to make an allusion to such deformity? And yet how much like Zophar are those of us who highlight past sins? Those things that have been said or done in our lives that disfigure our reputations. And we bring them up. I recently heard about a Christian woman who committed adultery. Her sin was exposed. She repented. And the church banned her from ever attending services again. She was told that she could not set foot on the property or enter through the doors. And even if one of her friends died, she was not allowed to attend the funeral. It was as if her sin, which was wrong, we understand that, had placed her beyond restoration But as I read scripture, it doesn't say that that's the unforgivable sin. Perhaps you've read the scarlet letter. That thing continues to go on. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. True Christians may be surprised by temptation and fall into sin. You know it, and so do I. But Job wasn't suffering because of guilt. His afflictions were not penal. He'd been stricken for reasons infinitely beyond his capacity to grasp. And you and I know the backstory, but he, as he lived through it, he had no idea. Zophar thought he had all the answers, but in truth he had none. That's why James says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger. We need more listeners in this world. He went on in his description of those blessings to follow repentance. You'll forget your misery, your life will be brighter, you'll feel secure, you'll lie down without fear. Oh, Job, all this can be yours if only you would repent of your wickedness. So on the one hand, Zophar is right in saying these things are available to believers because God does richly bless his children. But on the other hand, Zophar is wrong in thinking that God is perfectly predictable 
Mr. Beaver was right. He's not a tame lion. He's not always predictable. Sometimes his own children suffer. Sometimes it appears unfair. The godly man endures pain and misery while the ungodly man prospers and flourishes in this life. And it's unpredictable and mysterious. And all we can do is bow before his sovereign grace. Sovereign wisdom. So far, his concluding statement is one that must have deeply troubled Job in verse 20. The eyes of the wicked will fail and all who... All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. They're going to want to die. And that's an accurate assessment of the ultimate destiny of the wicked. But again, the problem was that Zophar was applying it to Job in an unfair way. He demanded penitence and contrition from Job when he should have offered him mercy and compassion. And in some respects, I think Zophar resembles, if you'll permit me to say this, those at Westboro Baptist Church. I don't often mention churches by name, but this one I will. This church is located in Topeka, Kansas, and is infamous for its extremism. If you go on Wikipedia, I wouldn't use this for any papers, but it says this, Westboro Baptist Church is an American hyper-Calvinist hate group. It's arguably one of the most obnoxious groups in the United States. They routinely have marches against things with which they disagree. They hold anti-gay protests at military funerals. They picket celebrity burials. Their cold and callous insensitivity to grieving families is appalling. They protest and denounce atheists, Jews, Muslims, Mormons, Catholics, and the list goes on. They're seen on news programs holding signs with inflammatory statements, and they publicly and they vociferously condemn all sorts of sins. And like Zophar, they're heartless, cruel, bigoted, and unfeeling, and there's no mercy. So let's beware of making judgments that ignore the sovereignty of God. That word sovereignty... It means ultimate authority and supreme power. Ultimate, as in final authority, that from which there is no appeal. Supreme, as in greatest, highest, utmost power. He is the Almighty. Man is a creature of the Creator, a subject of the sovereign God. And who are we to make judgments apart from the wisdom and knowledge of God? We have no right to judge anything apart from his inspired testimony. In Revelation 4, the Apostle John writes, God created all things, and by his will they existed and were created. He created everything. He preserves everything. And he's the final cause of everything. He made everything at his pleasure, and he made them for his pleasure. And he will not deny himself, and he can do what he wants. That's sovereignty. And we have to appreciate the fact that his thoughts and his ways are not ours. And it's for us to bow before his sovereignty and to worship him as truly God. That's number one. Number two, 
I think it teaches us to watch and pray, to resist the temptation to wrongly and harshly condemn. Every one of us, if we're honest, is to one degree or another like Zophar. We're so prone to condemn each other for the slightest things and to draw the wrong conclusions. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. None of us are appointed to sit in the judgment seat and to pass a sentence. So let's not speak evil of another or despise another or wrongly condemn another. Let's resist the temptation to put the worst spin on another's words and actions. We can't weigh the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You and I are limited. King Jesus is our savior and our only judge. Let's not usurp his authority. The things revealed to us are that we're called to love one another, which may include a friendly rebuke at times, But it says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. But this doesn't entitle us to condemn him as if we sit in judgment. Zophar, quite frankly, had a censorious disposition. And we have the same seeds within. Let's resist prejudicial judgments, unwarranted, one-sided, harsh, blind judgments. And then number three, and finally, Let's rejoice in the gospel of Jesus in whom you and I may find mercy and grace. Because in him, Christ Jesus, we receive the full forgiveness of all our sins and complete acceptance with the Father. He's freed us from the commands of men, from the dominion of Satan and from the fear of death. The true Christian may endure difficulties with a view toward heaven because we know And he knows that God is sovereign and Jesus is good and the Spirit is an indwelling friend. May that encourage us tonight as we go home from this place. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we read this and we understand that In so many ways, to one degree or another, we reflect the same disposition as one of Job's friends. Help us to repent of that. Help us to become more like Jesus, who is merciful and kind, long-suffering, who abounds in love for his people. May this sort of thing permeate our fellowship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.